Well, good morning. We're going to pick up again with Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 here, uh, starting from verse 8. But we'll just start with, with a word of prayer to start with. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask yet again for your strength and for your guidance as we seek to have the Spirit of Jesus, as we seek to perceive and discern his teaching and to live it and to be obedient to how he would have us to be and to think and to feel and to act. But Father, we're so weak and we pray, Father, that we may be like him and we believe that it pleases you to see us here in our weakness aspiring to the character and person of, of your dear son. So please strengthen us in our weakness and we believe that you are eager to do that. We pray above all things that he will be back soon and we shall see him as he is and that when we see him, we shall finally be like him. Father, please bless us to that glorious end. For the sake of Jesus, we ask this prayer. Amen. Okay, so Matthew um, Matthew 7, we started off last time looking at the uh, context here that it's about judging, and that you mustn't judge, uh, and he who condemns his brother shall, shall be condemned, and so forth. And it might appear that the Lord now talking about ask, and it shall be given you, seek, and you shall find, uh, etc., that this is now a change of theme, but... I hope to bring out that I think it is all seamless, that he's developing his thought quite naturally, seamlessly further. Now, I think I mentioned last time that when I was a, a kid, I, I used to pray to God with my eyes tightly closed, believing very strongly, and say, God, next time I open my eyes, may there be a five-pound note on the, on the carpet in front of me. And I shut my little eyes, and I prayed... And don't tell me I didn't believe enough. Uh, I believed. And I opened my eyes. And what was there? There was no five-pound note there. And I mention that because it just shows that, of course, these promises ask and you shall, you shall be given, and seek and you shall find. I don't think it's talking about material blessing. And we mentioned last time that the letter of James is in many ways a commentary on, <coughs> on the Sermon on the Mount. And... James makes the point that you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. And yet, he says, if you ask for wisdom, it shall definitely be given you without any question. So his commentary was really trying to point out that, no, don't misunderstand the Lord's words as meaning that you're going to just get what you ask for and blank check. He's talking about spiritual things. And I think that is James's comment. Now, looking more closely at verse 8, everyone that asks receives, he that seeks finds, these are all in the present tense. And to him that knocks, it will be opened. That is a future tense. So I think then that this knocking on the door, as I think we mentioned last time, looking at verse uh, 7, I think that that ultimately has in view the second coming and ultimate salvation in God's kingdom. And he's saying that you will receive in this life, and you will also have the door to God's kingdom open to you uh, when the Lord comes back. Now, he says, ask, and you shall... Uh, he who asks receives, and he that seeks finds. Now, these are the very similar words to what you've got in verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened. Uh, but when he says in verse 8, he that 
uh, asks, receives, that word for receive is different to what you've got in verse 7, ask and it shall be given you. Uh, now, it's lambano rather than that didomi, which means uh, to, 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 uh, to be given to. Why I think that's significant is that this same, that these same two words, the same couplet, uh, asking and receiving, you find in the promise of the comforter in John 16, 24, where in that period the Lord says, whatever you ask, you will receive. And I think that the promise of the Holy Spirit there is the promise of spiritual strength, not of miracles and five pound notes on the carpet and rabbits out of hats and this kind of thing, but of spiritual strength. Now, this fits in with what we said earlier, that James's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount seems to be a warning that it is not teaching a blank check. Ask literally what you want and you'll get. It's talking about asking for spiritual strength and you will get it. The Holy Spirit, the, a holy, godly mentality in our hearts and minds, that's what we will get. And so it's an amazing promise that you will get now spiritual strength if you ask for it. And also, finally, the, the door of God's kingdom shall be open to you at the last day. What more could you want in spiritual terms? And the Lord is here very clear, very, very clear that you shall get these things. He promises in language that is not capable of any other interpretation. It's an absolute promise that we shall get these things. And then he spends the next few verses laboring this point. Verse 9, what man is there of you? And although by this time the crowds were gathered around the Lord, it seems, his focus in these, uh, this teaching was on the twelve. And you can imagine him looking round at them. Which man is there of you? Who, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now, this idea of asking and giving is the same words as you've got in verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. So he's trying to persuade them by all means that, look, it is really this simple, that God really will give you spiritual strength in this life and the kingdom open to you at the last day. And so he tries to reason with them on a, on a human level to try to persuade them. The thing is that there were uh, loaves of bread that looked like stones, and that's why the wilderness temptation of the Lord in Matthew 4 verse 3 uh, was to imagine that those stones would turn into little loaves of bread. Now, there is in, in Aramaic uh, a strong similarity between the words for bread and stone. And it's the same with fish and serpents. If he ask a fish, verse 10, will he give him a, a serpent? The idea really is of, of an eel, uh, a, a fish that, uh, that, that looked, uh, well, an eel, that a serpent really, a water serpent that looked like a fish, but it wasn't really. I think that the Lord sensed the human skepticism about the gift of God. The idea that God wants to save people by grace. He sensed our skepticism and he says, look, it's either as good as it sounds or God is playing a pretty cruel trick. 
But he's, he's going to offer you salvation, the bread, and uh, bread uh, was understood in early Judaism as the bread of the kingdom, the, the manna of the kingdom. And Jesus talks in Matthew fifteen twenty six about the children's bread, um, the bread of salvation. He's saying, look, this is either true or it's just a cruel joke by God whereby he offers you salvation, bread, and actually it turns out to be a stone, and the stone in the Lord's teaching is nearly always the stone of condemnation, the millstone hung around the neck, uh, the stone of stumbling, First of Peter 2, verse 8. The Lord's saying, look, it, it's either, really, he's giving you the bread of the kingdom, the bread of salvation, or he's actually playing a cruel trick, he's offering it to you, and actually it's the stone of condemnation. And it's the same when he says, so is he going to offer you a fish, and it turns out to be a serpent? Of course, the serpent is a symbol of evil. Uh, and he's saying, is he going to offer you something that looks good? Now, I'm not quite sure when the fish became a symbol of early Christianity, but it may uh, well have been even during the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And there is in Aramaic uh, a similarity between the words for Jesus, Jesus, and fish, ictus. Uh, there, there was a, a similarity between them, and maybe that's where it came from. And I think, again, what he's saying is, do you really think... Uh, Luke 11, verse 11, puts this slightly more strongly. Uh, if he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Uh, He's saying, look, do you really think that God is offering you a uh, fish, uh, me, something nice and good, and actually it turns around that when you say yes, please, and you take it in your hands, it turns out to be a serpent? He's saying, look, no. You, you see the, the very powerful logic that he's building up. He said, quite simply, ask for spiritual strength in this life to, to grow spiritually, the strength against temptation, the Holy Spirit, holy mentality. I don't mean uh, doing miracles and the raising of the dead and so forth. I mean spiritual strength in the inner man. If you ask for that, he's saying, God, will. I promise you he will give it to you. And the door to God's kingdom shall be open to you if you knock on it. It will be open to you in the last day. You won't be like them who knock on the door too late and the Lord says, I'm not opening. It will be open to you. Even though, you know, we should by rights be condemned, we are all knocking on heaven's door as those outside the kingdom. But he says, in your case, it will be open to you. You will not be condemned, although you should be, but you won't be. He's saying, look, this is what I promise you. It's really that simple. And yet he knows that we don't see it like that. And so he addresses specifically this whole issue by saying, look, it's either as simple as I'm telling you, or God is playing a very cruel trick. God is offering you the bread of salvation, and he's going to turn around and give you the stone of condemnation. He's offering you the fish, maybe himself, Jesus but it's actually going to be the evil snake. Now, is that God? Is that in all our personal experience of him, in all our biblical experience of him, is that him? Is he not the God of all grace and sensitivity? And so we're, we're backing up against the wall here. You either believe that salvation is that simple, or in the end, God is cruel. 
and he's playing a cosmic trick whereby he's basically evil and not good. He's basically an evil god who's just pretending to be the good guy. If you don't like that, and if you say, no, no, that's not right, okay, so who is he? God is good. He wants to give you the kingdom. Jesus has tried to get that message over in how he structured the Lord's Prayer, the way he finishes it. For yours is the kingdom. In other words, you made the kingdom, you designed it for me. Please, then, give it to me. And that is God's will. And he goes further, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more then shall your Father, which is, heaven give, which is in heaven, give good things? Or Luke's record says, give the Holy Spirit, this spiritual strength, to them that ask him. If you then, being evil, does that mean that he looks at the, the twelve disciples and says, you evil lot? I think you need to connect it with Matthew 12, 34, where the Lord says about the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? So the idea of being evil, he uses this later specifically about the Pharisees. Now, this sentence in verse 11, if you then, it begins with this uh, particle A-E-I, and I think it would be justifiable to translate this, something like, even if. Even if you being evil, even if you were them being evil, you would know how to give good, good gifts unto your children. So I think what he's saying is, even if you were as bad as the Pharisees, who are evil, who being evil, try to speak good things, um, even if you were them, Look, even they, even those bad, evil men, even they have a soft touch for their kids. When their little boy asks them for bread, do they give him a stone? Even they are not like that. And so the step logic uh, builds up even stronger. He's saying, look, even evil people, the Pharisees, even they don't do that. Even they don't play a cruel trick like that on their own kids. You are God's children... Therefore, he is not going to do that to you. Therefore, yours is the kingdom. He wants to give it to you. And he says, they, verse 11, uh, know how to give good gifts unto your children, uh, uh, unto their children. Now, I am a great fan of Paul Turniard, and there's not many people who's, I can say I've read all his books, but I, I have with Paul Turniard, and I, I recommend him to you. He's a bit passé, he's a bit... Um, uh, he, he's very much a man of the 60s and 70s uh, rather than uh, current generation but uh, he's worth reading one of his smallest books is called The Meaning of Gifts and that, that is a very profound uh, book and he as a psychologist looks at what he, said, what he calls it The Meaning of Gifts and he makes the point there that actually if you love somebody part of that love and it's most typically seen in the relation between parents and children Part of that love is revealed in that you instinctively know how to give gifts. You sense what they would like. And the Lord is picking up on this. What Tournier picked up 2,000 years later, the Lord picks up directly. He understood the meaning of gifts. He's saying, look, look at those fallacies who being evil. 
actually have that same intuitive sense about what my little child would love. And he's saying, your father, how much more does he know that? And your father knows that in your heart of hearts you want to be spiritual. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount starts. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are spiritually poor. The Lord is saying, look, I know that those I'm dealing with, those I'm dying for, you are those who want to be spiritual, but you, you just can't get there. Good news for you is, although you haven't made the grade, no one has, uh, and God actually wants to give you the strength so that you can. And so he's saying that intuitive sense, knowing how to give good gifts unto your children or those whom you love, that ability that is released uh, by a basic feeling of love towards that individual, he says, God has got that. And of course, this all goes back to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, and he, he says this, uh, repeats this phrase here, doesn't he, several times, uh, in verse 11 again, your Father who is in heaven. But when you pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, it's not so easy to pray that, because if you really believe that God is your Abba, your Daddy in heaven, then you've got to believe that he wants to give you every good gift. Now, every good gift is defined here and in James, not as five-pound notes on the carpet and so forth, and not as material things, but actually what you really want, if you're a genuine believer, what you and I really want more than anything else is the spiritual strength to overcome sin, and ultimately the one thing that you want as I pray with my kids every day, and above all things, may we all live together forever in your kingdom. So I brought my kids up to pray, and that's what I pray. And God knows that that is ultimately what we want. And God therefore, God therefore, will give that. Because he is our daddy, he is the father who instinctively knows what we would like, and he will give it to us. Now, if frankly, that is not what you want more than anything else in the world. If uh, you do not really want spiritual strength against sin because you rather enjoy it, and you enjoy the life uh, of sin and so forth, well, yeah, you know, I, I guess you're in the wrong religion. But, of course, I'm trying to persuade you that if, above all, you want to go God's way, God is right there for you. He is the daddy, the father, who knows that's what you want, and he will give you that strength. He really, really will. Now, I, I mentioned in verse 8, everyone who asks receives. I pointed out that those two words occur in uh, the Lord's teaching about the Comforter, that through the Holy Spirit, we will receive what we ask, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness. And verse uh, 11 uh, agrees with that. He's saying, if you then being evil, I think you're referring to the Pharisees, uh, even if you are as evil as the Pharisees, you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things? And Luke's record says, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. So then, this spiritual strength really is available. And in fact, Ephesians 4 verse 8 
uses all the same words that you've got here, where he says that Jesus ascended to heaven uh, so that he could give gifts unto men. And again, he has the Holy Spirit in view. So many times, by the way, when the Lord is trying to encourage us about prayer and the answer to prayer, he uses the phrase, your father. Uh, You just have a look at that, how many times the phrase, your father, which is in heaven, is used in the context of faith in prayer. We've got a few here, this one here in Matthew 7, uh, Matthew 18, verse 19, Matthew 21, verse 22, Mark 11, 24, John 14, 13, James 1, 5, 6, 17, etc. So the idea of your Father in heaven and answered prayer go together. Because really, if you humble yourself and realize that you are no more and no less than a little child, then God is your daddy in heaven and he really will answer. He will give you what you really want. But of course it depends what you really want. Now he goes on to say, verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, but this is the law and the prophets. I would suggest that the therefore there is significant. At first blush it seems a little bit hard to understand the context. Um, But if you go to Matthew 18, verse 35, I'd like to um, have a look at this idea of do to you. All that you would wish that men should do to you. Okay, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do to you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespass. That do to you is something that's going to happen at the last day. Matthew 25, verse 40 and 45. Matthew 25, verse 40. King shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. And again, in verse 45, inasmuch as you didn't do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. From that you learn that whatever you do to Christ's brethren is done to Jesus. And it will have its uh, response in the day of judgment. So, putting this together, going back to Matthew 7 now, um, verse 12, whatever you would that men should do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I think that what he's saying is that whatever you do to men, to your brethren, you do to Jesus, and therefore it shall be done to you at the last day. This would fit in directly with the the whole theme of judgment, which we have here in Matthew 7. And that's why the therefore uh, runs on in that context. We would rather expect him to say, whatever you do to me shall be done to you. But he doesn't. He says, whatever you do, whatever you, you do to men, they shall do to you. How will they do it to you? in the sense that your judgment will be a direct reflection of how you have treated men, that is, Christ's brethren. This is right in the context of not judging, of not condemning. The idea, I think, is that if you tell people 
that, look here, you take this to judgment day, my friend. You did this. I really hope that you come to the day of judgment and get judged for this. If that's your attitude anyway, even if you don't verbalize those words, well, that shall be done to you. And who wants that? Who wants to come to the day of judgment and answer for all your sins? Because don't tell me you've repented of all your sins, half of them or more. You, you don't even know you, you're doing them, uh, probably. Cleanse me from secret sins, Psalm 19. Just remember that. So then, he's saying, don't load other people with stuff that you want them to have to answer for. Because what if it's done to you? And often when there is deep upset and anger, often in a sense, legitimately in the sense that someone has done something very wrong, there is often the sense, you're going to have to answer for this at the day of judgment. Stop. Don't say that. Don't even go there. Because you are a big sinner. Yes, you. You may say, oh yeah, but I didn't do that. Yeah, you didn't. But, but you are a big time sinner. And if you don't think you are, then you don't get it. We all are. I am. You are. We all are. And if we're going to tell other people, in our hearts anyway, that you've got to answer for that in the day of judgment, then okay. We make the answer now. It doesn't mean you necessarily will not be in God's kingdom, but he's saying, I think, that the judgment day is exactly as you will have it now, in how you judge others. Now, having sp spoken so much about judgment uh, and not judging uh, and, uh, and this, uh, he goes on to say, verse 13, Enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. So he takes the, the thread of thought forward onto the, uh, the day of judgment. Now, when he talks about entering in, enter in at the straight gate, I think the context is fairly clear he means enter into the kingdom. But the question is, does he mean enter at the last day or enter now? And there is a, a big theme in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, of what you could call now but not yet. There is a sense in which we are saved, and yet another sense in which he that endures to the end, in Matthew 10.22, shall be saved. There is a sense in which we are in God's kingdom, and we are entering into that kingdom now, and there is a sense in which, when Jesus comes, he shall say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We are in the promised rest, according to Hebrews, and yet a rest remains for the people of God. And we are to labor, Hebrews 4.11, to enter into that rest. And the, the whole language of entering in to the kingdom is used, I suggest, in that same way. That we, in a sense, enter now. We are in there now. If we keep on choosing to enter, or, and yet finally we shall only enter in when the Lord comes back. And I think what that means is that there is not, or there shouldn't be, this huge question mark in our minds about where shall I ultimately end up at my last end? Uh, will I be saved or shall I not be? Am I a kingdom person or not? Well, the point is, if you've entered in now, of course you can throw it all away uh, in this life, I understand that, but I think we should be in a position where in humility we say, if Jesus were to come back right now, I will be there. Because actually, I am already there. 
in essence. Now, that is a wonderful way in which to live. It means that all the unkindness of other people, hard experiences and relationships, whatever level, be they family, be they in the church, in life, in society, all that somehow fades into a background position, let's put it that way, because we are in, we have entered into God's kingdom. And that's where we are. We are in a status of being saved. Now, as I say, this is not once saved, always saved, because we can throw it all away tomorrow or in an hour's time or whenever. But, you know, as we looked uh, at the end of Matthew 6, when the Lord says, don't worry about tomorrow, because sufficient unto the day is evil thereof, I suggested that this was what he had in mind. Don't worry too much about that. Get on with rejoicing in your present status that you have entered in right now. He says that the gate is narrow or made narrow. And he repeats that in verse 14 because narrow is the gate. Uh, straight is the, uh, yeah, is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it. Now, the idea, I think, really, of two gates facing a man is surely an allusion to the gates of Jerusalem, where there was this big gate that camels could pass through, and there was the the small gate where pedestrians could go through. And he's saying, look, it's the small one. That's the one. Not the big one. It's the small one. And he he goes on to... uh, to say that uh, very few find this. And don't forget that he was talking to the disciples, but surrounded by a load of uh, crowds. And he was mocked by, mobbed by crowds all the way through. And he's saying that there's only a few who are actually going to find this. And he says this at the peak of popularity in his ministry. He talks, of course, specifically about this, uh, uses specifically this kind of metaphor in Matthew 19:24, Luke 18:25, where he talks about the problem of riches and wealth. And he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And I do go with the traditional interpretation of that, because it just seems to me to fit uh, so obviously and nicely that the camel can just about squeeze through the little gate if it humbles itself, gets down on its knees, and if all its wealth and all the things that are crowded on it are taken off, then it can just about squeeze itself through. And so the Lord is saying that entry into the New Jerusalem, entry into the city of God, into the kingdom, uh, is going to be difficult for most people. Because of wealth. It just fits, and it's true to life. It's true to human observation. Oh, yeah, God, the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I'd really like to look at that when I retire. Well, you know what? I'm just real busy at the moment. And why are people busy? All this stuff about time is nearly always to do with uh, trying to get ahead in the rat race and trying to get more wealth. That's just simply how it is, and all the worry that goes with wealth. That is the biggest reason why people are not switched on spiritually. There's no question that that is the big reason. 
And the Lord says that many go in at the wrong gate. I think what he's saying is that, yes, everyone wants to, or many people want to go in there. They want to go into God's kingdom. But actually only very few will. And uh, this is not what we'd like to hear. But he's going to develop this pretty relentlessly later on in verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works in your name, etc. Many people will recognize Jesus as Lord, but will not be in God's kingdom. And the whole thing gets a little bit more scary in 22. When you look at that Greek word that's translated many, and you see that it actually has this very strong sense of the majority. It's not what we want to hear, but uh, we're not here to uh, listen to what we want to hear. Uh, this is what the Lord is saying. So there's many people who like the idea of spirituality, who are not against the idea of God's kingdom, who are not against the whole thing. But he's saying that actually only very few will get there, because the, the way there is very narrow, and that gate is very small. And putting it up together with what he says in Matthew 19:24, why it's so difficult to get in there is exactly because of wealth. Now you may say, but I'm not rich. Well, as soon as we look at any Bible teaching and say, oh yeah, that's a pretty tough warning, but it's not for me, of course, alarm bells should start ringing. And I have made this point before, that a lot of the Lord's teaching about wealth is not actually directed at wealthy people. It is directed at poor people who are wannabes, who want to be, who would love to be wealthy. So actually, yes, it is for all of us. The way, he says, uh, is very narrow. Uh, verse 14, narrow is the way which leads unto life, and there are very few that find it. As soon as you encounter this idea of the way, we remember that just recently in the Lord's history, uh, John the Baptist had come, Matthew 3, verse 3, to prepare the way for him. So I think what he's saying here when he says very few people find the way, I think what he's saying is tacitly that John the Baptist's ministry had uh, not really succeeded. The way that leads to life, well, apago, this word that leads. You know what, that word is translated in Acts 12 verse 19, to put to death. Why does it, why can a word that apparently means to lead, why can it also be translated to put to death? Well, I think it's because the idea is led to death, to be led to death. And uh, the word's only used 14 times in the New Testament, and 10 of them specifically uh, mean, or are translated, led away to death. So it's very clear that when he says this way that leads unto life, He's drawing the, the great paradox that the way is to death. The way is to the death of the cross. The way is to self-crucifixion. It is the picking up of his cross and following him which leads to life. That it's not all uh, just name it and claim it. You want a wonderful life, you're just going to get it. He's saying, look, the way to that life is through death. And it's the way to death. And this is why the whole uh, language that he uses of a criminal's last walk, pick up your cross, which is just what somebody did at the very end, to pick it up uh, and carry it, 
to the place where they should die, that this was such a shocking idea. You know, it's not all about, you know, cupcakes and, and parties and fun this and fun that. Uh, that's not what it's about. It is a call to serious dedication and a serious self-sacrifice. And that's why he says, yeah, there are very few people that will find this way. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and will have a nominal Christianity. But there's very few that find the way of self-sacrifice that leads unto life. So just bear that in mind, because that is not a popular teaching in uh, many churches. Because we don't want that. Let's face it, who wants to pick up their cross and, and get involved in a criminal's last walk to, to death? Nobody. But that is what the Lord is saying, and that's why. So if you get it. Uh, so don't be surprised when you notice, as many do, that there doesn't seem to be a very high level of commitment in my church or amongst the people that I mix with. I don't quite understand this. Is it something wrong with me? Is it something wrong with them, etc.? Well, it's not, don't be surprised, because the Lord is clearly stating here that the majority, many, will just be Lord, Lord Christians. Now, it is not for us to point any fingers at any one individual and say, you are in that category, uh, but it is just something to be aware of. And why I mention it is that I see so many people uh, come into the Church of Christ, come into the Ecclesia, uh, assuming that they have now found this wonderful group of people, and they equate Jesus with his church in a wrong sense. And when they get disillusioned with the church, when they realize that actually many of them, as the Lord says in 22, are simply Lord, Lord people, who are just going through the external motions of the whole thing, uh, they then get disillusioned with Jesus himself. And they leave, and they lose their faith. See this happening all the time. It's very, very sad. There must be... A, a strong distinction made between Christ and his church. Of course, in one sense, the church is the manifestation of Jesus. It is the body of Christ. And yet, in another sense, if we, uh, if we say that they are one and the same, then, as I say, the minute you get disillusioned with the church, the minute you realize that many of them are simply saying, Lord, Lord, but don't do the things he says, then you get disillusioned with Jesus personally. This is why you can see people who start off their lives uh, in Christ so zealously, and they don't just leave our particular group, our particular local church or whatever, they lose their faith in God and Jesus completely. And that's why it seems to me that nearly every true atheist, 101% fully paid up, total no God, no agnostic, uh, solid atheist that I've met, well, in fact, I've not met one who has not got to that position without becoming, without having been deeply disillusioned by the church. That's a very sober thing to say, but it makes, in a sense, a kind of sense, uh, that what they've done is to equate God or Jesus with, uh, with the church. They got disillusioned with the church, got angry with the church, decided this is totally hollow, meaningless, so God and Jesus aren't as well. So I mention that because it, it, it's such a major problem. And yet he, he says in verse 13, the, the broad way leads to destruction. And that's, that word is used 19 times in the New Testament, always with reference, nearly always, to condemnation at the last day. So we have the choice before us 
of the way to destruction, the way to condemnation, or the way to death on the cross, being led away to, to death on the cross, which leads to life. That's a choice before you. The cross of Jesus or condemnation. So we make the answer now. And in that sense, there need be no uh, enigma, actually, about the final outcome of the Day of Judgment. God in his word has revealed his judgments to us. So he says many will go in their act, verse 13, etc. But only few will come to life, as I say, that the many is picked up there in 22, when these many are those who say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And it would, have, would seem that they had done miracles in his name. They're going to say to him on the last day, but didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do wonderful works or miracles in your name? Now, of course, that was true in the first century context, that people had the power to do miracles, Holy Spirit miracles, and I, I don't believe that we have the Holy Spirit in that miraculous sense today. And yet the message, I think, still applies to us. Somebody can be a channel for God's work, for example, doing miracles. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they are ultimately going to be in God's kingdom. It's like the Assyrian in Isaiah 10. God used the king of Assyria as he wanted, but this person was not necessarily a believer. And so it can be with us. So sometimes you get this strong sense that God is using me. God is at work through me in my life. And that's true, he is. But that does not therefore and thereby justify you. That does not mean you're going to be saved. And I also mention uh, a big Pentecostal error where the idea is if you're saved... God will give you the Holy Spirit gifts. And uh, if you're not saved, then you can't do miracles. But if you're saved, then you can do miracles. No. Here, the Lord says quite differently that people who have done miracles using the Holy Spirit, some of those will not be in his kingdom, even though they call him Lord, Lord. So that's a pretty big error to be aware of if you're involved with the Pentecostal movement. But getting more back home to you and me, who probably don't believe that we have such gifts, but the point is... Don't be fooled by the idea that God is using me, therefore I must be okay. No. And a public profession, Lord, Lord, this is not necessarily enough. And, in fact, many, the majority, who are going to say this will not be in his kingdom. No, this is, you know, wriggle and wiggle as you like. That's what he's saying. And, in fact, it's not only the Lord here. When you look at the later New Testament, you take 1 Corinthians 10, he says quite clearly that Israel passed through the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, as we're baptized into Christ. And yet what happened to Israel in the wilderness? As he goes on to say, most of them perished. Hebrews, the same thing. That there were all these, uh, the Jews came out of, or Israelites came out of Egypt into the, into the wilderness through baptism uh, of the Red Sea. And yet the majority perished because they did not believe. And you've got again in Romans where he, he makes the, Paul makes the same point. And he, he says, don't boast against the natural branches that were cut off. Don't think that you are better than them. Now, taking that, Romans 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews, and there's other implications, but you just take those three passages that, that I've just mentioned. The implication, I do not think, can be avoided from them. That... If we as spiritual Israel, as those that have left Egypt been baptized, 
now in the wilderness journey towards the kingdom. If we consider that we are better, that statistically we have a better chance than Israel after the flesh, we got it wrong. Take heed. Let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. That was written exactly in that context of Christian believers saying, that's what happened to Israel, but we're much better than them. Statistically, we're going to be better. I don't like to dwell on these things. Who does? You know, let's have some positive uh, teaching. But uh, the point is, this is the Lord's teaching that we've encountered here in Matthew 7 about the majority of those who say, Lord, Lord, and do miracles will not be in his kingdom. And the idea that out of all those that press into the New Jerusalem, that want to be in the city of God, want to be in the kingdom, actually the majority go down the wrong the wrong way, going through the wrong gate. Um, in all intellectual honesty, you know, I, I would far rather give you happy, clappy, positive, tap you under the chin and say, yeah, it's all good, uh, sort of message. Uh, I can't. In all intellectual and spiritual honesty, one cannot look at all this and shrug and pretend we didn't see and look the other way. And yet I would say that this fairly tough message about the majority not making it uh, is juxtaposed, that is, it is put together with the incredibly positive teaching that we outlined earlier in this talk in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, that quite clearly, if you want spiritual strength to get to God's kingdom, God will give it to you. If you want power against temptation, the Holy Spirit, a spirit of holiness, psychological strengthening against sin, whatever you, way you want to put it, God will give it to you, and at the end he will open the door, and you will be in God's kingdom. And he says, you don't believe it? You think God's playing some cruel game with you? You think God's a cruel father who's just uh, playing a game, offering you the bread of salvation, and he turns around and gives you the stone of condemnation? Like, God's not like that. So, you see, he balances the two things out. And that's quite right, I guess, that he, he should. Because if it's all, oh, great, well, we're all going to be saved anyway. No. <laughs> the reality is that the majority won't be. The majority of those who want to get in the city of God go in through the wrong gate and they end up in condemnation. So this keeps us on our toes, to put it mildly. And it, looking at it another way, he says you know, many, the majority, are not going to get there. Uh, what about the promises to Abraham? That the seed of Abraham shall be as many as the stars in the sky for multitude. Well, I think you've got to put it all in context. Yes, many shall be saved compared to the wonder of salvation. But actually, relatively few shall be saved compared to the ease, if you like, of salvation. That idea, I think, is continued in 14 when you see that the way is uh, narrow. And yet... When you look in the Proverbs, and the Lord clearly quoted a lot of his ideas from the Proverbs, you read there that the, the way of the righteous, of the upright, is a highway. Proverbs 15, verse 19. It's the way of the, the wicked, verse, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 5, uh, which is filled with obstacles and which is very difficult to navigate. Well, clearly, from God's perspective... In Proverbs, the way to salvation is straight, simple, no obstacles, simple as. But actually, in reality, in reality, very few find that narrow way. 
because they take the broad way. Even though in spiritual terms, Proverbs says, that road is full of obstacles and potholes, etc. Just like in one sense, many shall be saved, as many as the stars in the sky, but in another sense, very few shall be saved. Now, few there be, verse 14, that find it. When you read about finding, your mind goes back to verses 7 and 8. Seek and you shall find, he that seeks finds. And yet the Lord says, few find it. He's saying, if you really want to find salvation, if you really want to be in my kingdom, you will be there. It is a blank check promise that if you really want, above all things, to be in God's kingdom, you will be there. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 8, that the Lord will come and welcome into his kingdom all those who love his appearing. If you want to be there, you will be there. Now I said to you that I pray in my own prayers and I try to teach my children to pray. Above all things, may I be in your kingdom. And I suggest that that is the way that we should go. And that if above all things that is our desire to be in his kingdom, we have a whole chapter here chapter 7 of Matthew, telling us, if that's what you really want, your loving Father who intuitively, intuitively knows what you as his little child really want, he will give it to you. Yours is the kingdom. 